Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Show Your Work. Hi, I'm Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And uh, we have a royal report card that we have to check in today. Oh, like no preamble? I dressed for the preamble. I did the whole thing and you're not even here for me? Oh, we're going to do a preamble. I just needed to record that for the social media. (laughs) But yes, everybody, as you've been asking for, we're going to get to our royal report card that we, what did we, we come up, what did we, we came up with it, what, like three weeks ago, the first episode back? Yeah, sure. Okay. First episode back. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the royal tour is over. There is royal news. So hang on for that. It's coming up later in the show. Look at you. That's like a promo within a promo. But I dressed for you. You dressed in pajamas. Yeah, not just pajamas because you are known to have a real strict definition of what constitutes pajamas. Correct. They have to match or be a set. Like nobody gets to just wear a t-shirt and some yoga pants and call it pajamas. That's all I sleep in, or like less than that, depending on where I am. Then you but... call them sleep clothes. You don't call them pajamas. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't care. But it's not about the labeling. But the point is, I've never liked a matching set because they're not comfortable. Like, I don't know how it works for you. I don't know why you're able to wear like a long pant that's stiff and made of cotton, and you inevitably wake up. And there's a weird air pocket around one calf because the leg has pushed up and like gotten jammed up against the sheets and hate. I hate. I've never had that experience. Like I buy comfortable ones and they're very comfortable and they like remain comfortable. No, but they move like in a terrible way. It goes double for nightgowns for when that was a thing. So no, you want to be wearing like things that are close to one's body. I love that we're both in pajamas, almost matching. Like, I have plaid pajama pants on. Yeah, you don't even match right now. I just want to be clear about that. You can't call them pajama pants if they're not in a set. They're just pants. But I'm not going to bed yet. When I get into bed, the matching top will come on. It's just that I don't want to wear the matching top right now because I'm drinking and eating and I don't want it to get dirty. Oh, my God. <laughs> the However, I chose to wear these is because I've never felt pajamas like this before. They're so comfortable. I originally did only buy the pants, but had to go back and buy the shirt because feel this. Oh, yeah. They're very good. They are very stretchy and They're comfy really good. And like they move with you so they're not going to be, be trapped in the sheets because, oh, the other thing is I live with somebody who insists on a top sheet. I don't know. Like I feel like there are two kinds of people in the world. Does he really? Yeah insists on it? Really actively prefers a top sheet. Yeah. This is one of those conversations where we, it could turn into like a five hour debate. Yeah. I yeah. just don't. I, That's weird. It's yeah. I don't like it. I don't yeah. see the point, but I've really been upping my game on sleep lately because I like, I love sleep, but I'm not always good at it. I can get insomnia. I can have trouble falling asleep. 
So I have these pajamas, which this is not an ad, but like DM me and I will tell you where to get them. They are very economical and so, so cozy. Um, And I bought a weighted blanket. Do you know about this? Yep. It is so Mm -hmm. good. It is just, you get into bed and it's like a slightly hard to maneuver hug and it makes me so happy and I'm, it's a new game. I, listen, I... The only thing giving me a little anxiety right now is that, are you going to like... I knew this was coming. Are you I gonna, knew this was coming. Are you, So you're here at my house in your pajamas, and then you're going to go home, and then are you going to get right into bed? Well, if I'm being honest, it like, look, it's going to depend how... I'm very uncomfortable. I, yeah, I know. I know you are. Because, of course, for the uninitiated, you're uncomfortable because I have my pajamas like in the world. Right. Even though they're only at your house, which conceivably you think of as being I know, but a you clean still place. stepped into the world and and anyway, you know me, I'm very weird with showering and like things I'll wear into the world and not into the world. I have a lot. This I'm very uncomfortable. Yeah, you have a lot. But the true <laughs> answer is like uh, chances are like it's gonna get real hot. And so not you know, they don't necessarily take you to but it's just the lounge thing. I never even used to be the person who changed after work. Like people would come over after work and I remember I was still wearing work stuff. You'd I, wear your jeans for fucking hours I after coming home. Why not? Like uh, waistband. I like, it didn't bother me. But this is the first thing I found where I'm like, oh, I actively want to be in these because they're so much more comfortable. I don't get it. Anyway. I, I think what you mean is they're supremely comfortable and you're getting yourself a pair. I, I'll get myself a pair, but I'm not going to wear them to your house. You don't have to wear them anywhere you don't want to. I have a lot of stress over the fact, like now I'm going to be wondering, like you're going to get into your bed with pajamas that have been outside and I, yeah, that's super weird to me. I, okay. <laughs> don't worry about it. Okay. I'll send you a picture of what I wear My to bed and that won't be okay either. My scalp is because of it. You're welcome. You are so welcome. Anyway, what was your preamble going to be had I not arrived in pajamas? I forget now. Good. <laughs> I have an itchy scalp from your outside inside pajamas. Let's get to work. So, if you can call it work. It's funny that recently uh we've had a couple of conversations where I'm like, "Hey, I want to send you this pitch for the podcast because usually we just email back and forth." But this pitch was not particularly based on an article, and I had to go through it with you on the phone. I am vibrating with excitement because when I leave here, the next place these pajamas are going is to go home to the couch and watch the final five episodes of Homecoming. Homecoming starring Julia Roberts and Stephen James. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's... The Julia Roberts show, as any show is going to be. Um, So Homecoming, if you haven't seen it advertised, is the new show on Amazon. It's Julia's Peak TV. And I read articles where people had the audacity to be like, Julia Roberts was late to the game. But it is magnificent. It is fantastic. I was excited about this story before I saw it. But after I saw it, I'm I'm even more elated about it. Uh, But I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about how it came to be because it's a funny story. Yes. And I should just mention right now I pronounced from Toronto, Stefan James's name wrong. He's from Toronto? Yes. That's why I was shocked that you blew right over it and was like, you know, it's Julia Roberts. Yes, he's from Toronto. So change that attitude. I didn't know. Now I have a whole new perspective. Thank you. I want to listen to his 
everything and see where his regional pronunciations are. I'm glad that you now have turned around on Stefan James, Duanna. Well, I didn't know. I how would how would I know if I didn't know? So get this. Stefan James is also going to be um, in the soon-to-be-released If Beale Street Could Talk, directed I, by Barry Jenkins. Mm-hmm. His brother, mm-hmm. also obviously from Toronto, is on the rise at the same time. So the James brothers are doing things and repping Toronto. There you go. Okay. Love that. So you already have two reasons then to mm-hmm. watch this show. Uh, and really, it is… I. You know, I would have wanted to talk about it regardless, but it is not like anything we've been watching for the longest time. My clearest indicator of how good this show is, is that I didn't play on my phone at all while binging five episodes. So it's kind of a suspense thriller. The episodes are only a half hour long, uh, which I thought was going to feel weird, but doesn't really feel weird. Okay, so the premise is Julia Roberts is like an army counselor. Yeah, she works in a counselor position in a initiative of uh, some version of the armed services, uh, and it doesn't help us to get more specific than that. Uh, but we're flashing back and forth mm-hmm. through time. It's one of those shows where yeah. you're not sure how far in the future the future is and what's happening, but we're beginning to kind of dig in. And I, my understanding, like the very top line simplistic premise is that she and we have to figure out why she doesn't do that anymore. That's exactly right. right. There's okay. something that happened and, you know, early on you get a date that maybe the, it happened on, but, uh, you know, we don't know why and what and so forth. What I really love too is because this is a Julia Roberts project with, you know, an introduction to Stefan James. Um, somehow, or not somehow, we know why, Julia's been able to launch these two projects, well, this project and her other project, Ben is Back, Mm -hmm. which is a film, it's coming out very shortly, already they're talking about awards content, uh, already they're talking about awards season contention, Um, she's doing it within the same month, virtually within the space of like three weeks, we've got a TV Julia and a movie Julia. Right. And Julia I'm, Domination. Sure. And, you know, I don't know. You'll know off the top of your head who the studio is who's releasing Ben is Back. Uh, and I don't know which project came first, but it only makes sense if you are an Amazon programmer or a film release programmer to, you know, have those two things happen in conjunction with each other because you get to piggyback on each other's press and on the attention, and all that kind of thing. You capitalize on the Julia. Basically. Yeah. And, like, there's a lot there. That's Amazon, and then, obviously, the film company is uh, Lionsgate and Roadside. Um, okay, so how did this project come to be? This is what you were, this is what you were super excited about. Right, but I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, did you know that this was how it came to be? No, I did not have any – I did not do any research into the origin story of Homecoming. Right, so – Here's how it went down, and you have to go deep, deep into podcast realms. And I know podcast people are deep generally and understand the links between, but stay with me. So very famous podcast, This American Life, uh, has a contributor named Alex Bloomberg, does a lot of stuff for Planet Money, did an incredible show called The Giant Pile of Money that explained how the subprime mortgage crisis happened in a way that people understand. He goes and starts a podcast network named Gimlet. 
Gimlet has a number of podcasts, including this one called Startup, which is fantastic, which talks about startups, starting up a business and so forth. Uh, and somewhere along the way, they decide to try the first season of a scripted podcast, which was the prototype for Homecoming. So it was like a radio drama. It was, you know, all heard sounds. There's no explanation off the top. You have to get what's going on from listening. And I mean, it had a pretty good cast to begin with. They had Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac, and I would have to look for more of the tertiary characters, but like good names. Yeah. Uh, and so then they sold a couple projects through their agency, blah, 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 blah. And homecoming happens. It's a little throwbacky because back in the day of like radio, when people would sit around their living room and families would listen to the radio all the time, they used to do this like storytelling. Isn't there that famous story where, um, it was like some sort of alien attack and people were listening on the radio, Orson Welles. Right. And um, people literally thought that Earth was being invaded by aliens when they were listening on the radio. Right. Because it was, a uh, yeah, there was a, a lack of separation or whatnot. Yeah. So this is the origin of it. But what got me really excited was that Startup did a few episodes. So now the snake is eating its own tail. Startup, which is a podcast about startups. Uh, originally followed the startup of Gimlet Media, the podcast network, and then they devoted four episodes recently to the development of Homecoming, the show. Right. Uh, after already having had, uh, I believe, two seasons of the podcast as an audio podcast. Right. So that was the most exciting part because the two worlds are converging. Yeah. And I have to be honest, not to pat ourselves on the back, but this is one of the only pop culture outlets where you're going to hear that it came from a podcast. Most of the articles, quite rightly, focus on Julia right. and the smile or the lack thereof or the laugh or whatever, and don't actually mention where it came from to begin yeah. with. Yeah. It's meta, meta, meta. Like you're saying snake eating its own tail, but the startup podcast about the making of Homecoming, the podcast series that was developed into an Amazon television series is meta, layer, meta, layer, meta. Right. And if you haven't been excited yet to try it because of Julia Roberts or Stefan James, the director is Sam Esmail. Mm -hmm. So speaking of meta, 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 and like all that kind of stuff, that's his whole bag. Okay. So what got you really excited though is how they turn the podcast series into a television series. Right. And uh, full disclosure at this point, there are four episodes of the podcast telling how they did that, but I only listened to the first two because I don't want any spoilers. Um, what happened was, you know, they had an agency and said, hey, we have this IP, intellectual property. Uh, this is the hottest thing going in show business right now, that if you have a, a book, a, a comic, a whatever, this is what companies want to buy and develop because it already exists and it's better than making ideas from thin air, they think. Uh, more importantly, because IP is, is, it means that it's been a proven concept, right? If you have something, it means there's an audience built in or so they think. So yeah, the producers find a writer that they like, they work out some scripts, they, the agency send it around, Sam Esmail kind of likes it. Uh, and it's like, don't, don't let me come in and fuck with it. Like you do your thing. But eventually he signs on. And then of course they explain 
that they sent it to some other people, uh, meaning cast. And I should point out right now, like, they already had Catherine Keener. She's mm-hmm. not nobody. Right. But I don't know what the story is there. I don't know if she was busy. I don't know what the deal is. Somehow the script makes its way to Julia Roberts. Right. And, like, we know, like, if it's going to Julia Roberts, it's not going out to anybody lesser until Julia and her ilk have passed. Yeah. She didn't pass. No. So she gets on the podcast. They're like, say your name. And she's like, Julia. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And And you can picture her face as she's saying, Julia. Obviously. Yeah. Because you know if you know, but they haven't announced coming up after the break, we'll hear from Julia Roberts. Like it's, they play it like a surprise. Uh, And then they say, well, how are you, like, how did you get involved? And she says, well, I got, I think she said she got the podcast first. And she said, I was listening to it while I was picking up 6,000 pieces of Lego in my son's room. And like, stop me there because come on. Yeah. Come on. So just in the space of one sentence, Julia Roberts picks up Lego in her son's room. I mean, the only thing that would have been more just like us, just like you, than that story would have been like, oh, when I'm driving and picking them up from the school run. Which maybe would have been more believable. Right. Um, Or if she was standing over him being like, I don't care. You're not going out until you pick up every last Lego. I would have bought that. Anyway, Julia's on board. So this is what's called a a package, right? Or an attachment. Like what's a, a, I'm trying to think of a comparable project where when they go to sell it, they have this, that, and this person attached. Well, the first thing that comes to mind would be in the gaming industry. So 100 Thieves was just going through a round of principal or initial financing. um, And they recently made an announcement that their first celebrity investors were Drake and Scooter Braun. Which, so you, <laughs> so nobody big is what you're saying. So when you are a startup, right? There you go. Or a company that's very, very well known in a niche industry. Gaming is no longer going to be niche in five minutes, or maybe isn't niche anymore. In fact, nobody has money except for gaming, or nobody has the money that gaming has right now. Anyway, but if for them to go up to the next level and to go to investors and to start sort of I don't know, stock evaluating and all that business world shit, having the package, as you just said, attached to names like this obviously is a huge step forward. In fact, it's often the only way that an unknown is going to get to places like this. You know, you always hear people saying, oh, I wrote this part for so-and-so. And it's like, you're dreaming. Unless you have an agency as the guys from Gimlet Media do, who can package kind of internally. So they were referencing CAA, uh, and so it's conceivable that it comes internally through CAA, and they don't take it out to people who are going to buy it until they've locked together this package. A script on its own is like, eh, it's a what? It's a po- what? What is a podcast? That's still a relevant joke for five more minutes, but a script with Sam Esmail and Julia Roberts, great. So they tell the story about how the the two guys, the kind of creator producers, and they were asking for the world in terms of wanting to be showrunners or executive producers, which they'd never done before. But again, they have this package. And they're going from place to place in LA, uh, 
often you do it in a real concentrated bunch, either because in their case, they're from New York, so they want to make as much of their time in LA as possible. And so you might pitch three or four times in a day. It's good for momentum, all that kind of thing. But they start talking about how they were provided a driver. I want to malign anybody. Uh, so I'm not sure if the driver is provided by CAA or by uh, Sam Esmail's parent company who financed his projects or whatever. But they come out of their first pitch and they're like, oh man, I don't know. I'm not sure how it went, whatever. And the driver goes, guys, hey, don't worry. Let me tell you something. I only drive winners. <laughs> they send somebody else for the projects that are not going to make it, which is amazing and hysterical. And like, this made you very happy when I told you. It did, because now my next question is, when did the driver realize that he was the winner's driver? Like, at what point did he pick up on the trend? Well, or, you know, do they even have loser drivers? Like, maybe they don't. Um, maybe every project they send out gets made. They are CAA, after all. But I love that he's created this narrative for himself. Yeah. Even better, they are in this same car a few hours later when the call comes, uh, Amazon made an offer like hours after they were there. So essentially it was sold in the room. That's the expression. Mm -hmm. And so they're sitting there on the phone from their rep. Oh my God, I had this, I had that, you know, one relaying it to the other. I can't believe it. And the driver's up front going, I can, I told you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. But you know what? It is a nice segue into pitching. Because this is a process that happens every single day in the industry. Mm -hmm. Your agents set up meetings for you. You've put together a package. Some packages don't have Julia Roberts and Sam Esmail attached Most. to them. Most. Most. Yeah. You have an idea. Maybe you've written a few pages, whatever. And then you get sent out to these meetings and you're going from meeting to meeting to meeting, probably five or six or seven, whatever a day, and you're pitching. But you only get what? How much time? Because you've done this. I've done this a bunch, and it's an essential part of the industry, but, you know, you get, call it an hour, and the breakdown is, depending on how many people are in the room, it's 15 minutes of chit-chat, maybe 10 minutes of chit-chat, just random, like, oh, did you see this? Did you see that? Half the reason that everybody in the entertainment industry is so obsessed with seeing everything that comes out and being up on everything that comes out is so that... If you go someplace where they've just had a big hit, you don't want to walk in there and be like, oh my God, you guys, Mindhunter, so amazing. And then somebody says, oh yeah, what part did you like best? And you're like, the finale. Like you're, <laughs> yeah. you can't do that. So chit chat. Then the producers, the non-creatives, whoever it is who has brought this meeting because creatives can't generally make a meeting by themselves, which is a hilarious thing say, oh, we're so excited about this project for whatever reason, and then here's Duanna to tell you about it. And then there's about maybe 15, 20 minutes of actually telling what the story is, uh, another 10, 15 of questions or thoughts or where would you see this or whatnot, and then it's thank you so much. Okay, great. And that's the case whether it is a good meeting or a bad meeting. Mm -hmm. um, the pitch itself can go a little longer depending, but it's always the case. What rarely happens is that it's bought in the room, as, as we say, or immediately afterwards. Like, even great projects often don't hear until a few days, a few weeks later, depending on how intense the interest is in the project. Yeah. So this is kind of unheard of. 
Do you rehearse a pitch? Oh, yeah. Okay. So are you working this out with your agent? Uh, it depends on who is sending you out. If it's an agent sending you for a staffing job, for example, uh, or to sell a project, you might. You might work it out uh, in a more casual way. And different people have different methods. Some people read directly off a page or have cue cards and are kind of off book but not. Or you rehearse with your producers who also have different uh, ideas about what it might be. Right. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So you rehearse a pitch, mm -hmm. then essentially you're delivering the performance over and over and over again on that day. Absolutely. And hitting the same jokes and hoping they feel spontaneous. And, you know, the people who are with you in the room are the ones who are laughing on cue, even if they've heard it seven times before. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm picturing Reese Witherspoon uh, with Hello Sunshine. Uh, you know, if they take out a project that's adapted from a book, can't you see her in the room? just laughing perfectly on cue every time yep. and just being that sunny face that's so interested as the creative does the pitch, even if they've heard it in their sleep. So for me, listening to this and imagining it, it is not unlike like a Dragon's Den slash Shark Tank situation, right? Yeah, because it's even… It's a performance. It's definitely a performance and you definitely have to leave it all on the floor um, you know, depending on what the project is, you will leave other things behind or more accurately, you send it afterwards. Uh, a big thing that happens is that people always say, oh, we have something, we'll send it right over. What they actually do is tailor it a little bit to whatever was said in the room. So if somebody says, oh, you know, this would be great, but like, wouldn't it be even better if they were brothers? Right. And you're like, Right. Uh, you know, if it's something minor and you sort of massage it a bit and send. So it's definitely a performance. The difference between it and Dragon's Den is you're not getting a yes or no in the room necessarily, or that's rare. What I like about a story like this and this growing inside baseball um, information that we get in our time right now, which we weren't getting out of the entertainment industry 20 years ago is that this happens in so many industries and in so many jobs. Lawyers rehearse their pitches. Their pitches would be, if you're dealing with a criminal case, their opening statements, their closing statements, whatever evidence they're presenting that day. I mean, there is a lot of preparation that goes into that, and who they're pitching to is not like, you know, a studio head, but a jury or a judge. I mean, these are transferable pockets of work that we have from industry to industry, whether or not you're pitching a new show that was based off a podcast, or you're pitching an invention um, to billionaires who might be financing your invention, or you're pitching your interpretation of how a crime unfolded and who was responsible for it. Oh, absolutely. And one of my favorite podcasts right now is called The Pitch, and it's essentially an audio version of Dragon's Den. It's pitching your idea in about 15 minutes for investors who are going to buy in or, or not. I think what's interesting about show business pitches that I think can or cannot extend to the outside world, and it's really interesting that you bring up lawyers, is that all of the trial lawyers that we see on television, which is most of them, right? Like most lawyers don't go to court every day, but yeah. those are, these are the ones we watch. They all look like they are kind of swinging off the cuff. And that's definitely the goal in a television pitch as well. Um, you know, there's great, great 
techniques on how to look like you're being totally spontaneous mm-hmm. up to and including um, the showrunner of Hand of God. I got to hear him speak recently. Uh, and he talked about how one of the greatest things you can do in a pitch and say, oh, wait, 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 I forgot. I got to go back and tell you about this. He didn't forget. Yeah. But it adds to that spontaneous feeling, the idea that something's happening in front of people. So I, and I think lawyers often do that same thing. They look like they are riffing even though they've rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. So what I don't know is whether if you're presenting at the dentistry conference or, you know, the, the at the fundraising gala or whatever, whether there's also a premium on looking like it's off the cuff. You used a phrase a couple of weeks ago and I like went home and Googled about extemporaneous speaking. Yeah. And I think that's something that's prized definitely in the business to look like you're so riffy and cool Mm -hmm. and easy, but all of the best riffing and ease and whatnot has definitely been rehearsed within an inch of its life. No question. You mentioned fundraising. I used to work in fund development, like in different fields. So in academia and in social work, we would send our president, the university president, into meetings with heads of banks, billionaires. A lot of times, you know, she only had 20 minutes because these are the, the heads of banks, for example, have schedules like Barack Obama or like really important heads of state where their days are divided in 10-minute increments. Their meetings can only last 10 minutes. So you don't shoot the shit. You um, get right in there. Hi, how are you? Thanks, you? thanks for seeing me. Here are the briefing notes. Here's what I need. Here's the scholarship that you'd be so interested in. Here's this and that and the other. Please let us know. But we would prepare the president Um, with all that information. And then after getting the information together would be the strategy on how to unfold the conversation, where you hit first, where you hit second. If number two doesn't work, do you move number five up and getting it done in 20 minutes? So this pitching, I mean, it's sales and sales is part of almost every aspect of business and work. Absolutely. And I think the thing is that people often feel that there are some people who are good at sales and some people who aren't. Like, I think often people talk, um, writers and producers often talk about people who are great at pitching or aren't great at pitching. Uh, and I'm sure that's the case outside the industry as well, right? Oh, some people go in and yeah, do a sales call or whatever. They're great. But it's not because of some natural God-given talent. It's because of endless practice. And the other thing I was talking about people having a number of pitches in a row in a day or a week, it's not just because of scheduling. Like, frankly, if CAA is paying, you can stay for a month. Right. It's because it builds momentum. Repetition and that 10,000 hours thing and going, okay, I can see their eyes start to glaze. Now I move to point number five. Now yeah. I move up this. I, it's that repetition of over and over and over. It's that concept of at-bats again. Well, I did this when I sold my book. So um, my, like my book pitch was done. Um, it was sold in Canada. Mm-hmm. And my agent and I went to New York. And we had five meetings lined up with five different publishers. And it was exactly like this. Those five meetings happened in the course of one day. It was one hour with each. Yep. It was a pitch about the story, they had the thing in writing. Like, I mean, there's an outline and like a sample chapter, but it was up to me and my sparkly personality to tell them why they needed to buy a book about a Chinese squawking chicken. Um, And at the end of the day, 
there, you wait, you wait and see if there are some offers on the table. Well, I'm so glad that you said that because this is an argument that comes up a lot about pitching. Well, I wrote the script or the pitch document or the outline or whatever it is. Why do they need to see me? Why do I need to go through the whole song and dance? Just read it. Yeah. Um, And the answer, uh, you know, the most officious answer is, well, tone and to be able to ask questions and that kind of thing. But the more important answer is that in anything creative and outside of anything creative, people want to work with people that they like and dig and trust. Um, And I'm sure you had some meetings, as I have had some meetings, where you go, yeah, it went well enough, but those people aren't a fit or I'm not a fit for them or both. You know, sometimes it's just about a vibe. And sometimes there are people where you're like, I want them to adopt me. Yeah. Well, I mean, what people will say is, or the pure artists will say is the work is all that you need, right? I am the writer. I have created and um, expelled the work and the creativity onto this page and it should be enough. Yeah, but I defy you to tell me anybody who's working who talks like that. Like anybody that we hold up on this show or the site as somebody who's a, like a working person, there's no way. There isn't, but it has been romanticized. We've talked about this before, about what that looks like. They don't tell the stories about how the writer or the artist went from door to door and business to business to get their work seen. They only show you the parts where they're like, I don't know, in some fucking warehouse and uh, I don't know, twirling their paintbrush around. Like, <laughs> I, I guess, but those people aren't really actually players in the business today. And that extends one more step to a place I didn't think we were going, but I think it's so important. That extends one more step to social media. There are still a lot of people who feel like it is maybe untoward or uh, a bit self-aggrandizing to promote your work or talk about how excited you are about something that's happening, that the work should speak for itself. If you want to go see my movie or whatever, go ahead. And to those people, I say, have you met Shonda Rhimes and Ava DuVernay and people who are actively involved in engaging the audience? Because that's the world we live in now, right? Like, this is what we do. You get excited to interact with somebody or to see, oh, Kerry Washington says this, or so-and-so says that. Yeah, I should see it. Uh, And the idea that you can just be in your garret somewhere, Mm -hmm. churning out pages, and that people will come may have been true at some point, but definitely not true today. Well, I do think that it's, it's, you're right. I agree with you on all points. I, I also think though that that perception, the judginess is gendered. Yeah. It's, it's different when it's coming from a woman and a woman is out there being like, look what I did. Here's what I'm promoting. Here's what I'm a part of. Whereas when like a dude does it, it's more in line with who gets to be ambitious. I don't disagree in terms of people who get more criticism, that women get more criticism Mm -hmm. for promoting, or, uh, you know, Jennifer Weiner comes to mind, the New York Times bestselling author who has complained about how they never did a profile on her, even though she was regularly at the top of the New York Times bestseller list uh, in favor of Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. Her nemesis. Yeah. Jonathan Franzen or Jonathan Lethem or any of the, like, you know, the sort of erudite-seeming yes. male authors. 
But I think that the criticism of, ugh, it's so gross and mercenary how you're promoting, I think that's that comes in from all genders. Uh, I've seen it uh, from men, from women, from everybody being like, ugh, she's just like constantly like promoting her shit. And it's like, oh, so she wants to work? Is that what you're saying? She, she wants to generate an audience for her work? How dare she? The devil. And it's been a long time coming around on that kind of philosophy, but... I think, uh, yeah, I think if you are admiring somebody who thinks they're above promoting and pitching and all that kind of thing, I would say, when's the last time they did anything? I mean, I got caught up in that too, I would say. I mean, I, I'll readily admit that probably there have been, no, probably, definitely there have been some, some times when I've been like, oh my God, can he just stop? Like, you know, every single thing that comes out of his mouth is a me and a do this and whatever. Um, so I... I, and yeah, have I come around to it because I've had to pitch now and because like there's shit that I need to promote? Of course, because at the end of the day too, no one's going to sell you but you. Right. And without going into a dissertation on social media as a tool, I think the people who bother you are the people who never do anything else. The people who are appealing are the people who are posting about other things besides themselves or, you know, talking about other things, engaging with other people but who also recognize, yeah, I do have to take care of me and, you know, create a a warm and willing audience because that's what it comes down to inside and outside of a pitch. And that's why somebody goes to a pitch is, are people going to be engaged by this content and this person? Is there an audience that will come to find this because of who these people are? Hence, attaching Julia Roberts. So what's our takeaway from this pitch story? Uh, I think the takeaway is if you have something that you have big lofty dreams for, it better be amazing. Like this is the thing. For Julia Roberts, who gets all of the scripts in the world, to sign on to a no-name, no-credits audio drama that's becoming an Amazon show before it was ever going to be an Amazon show, it has to be really, really excellent. So always be working your way up to getting your project to be that place. But that said, it can be done if it's not like something else that's happening. And I guess the other side of it is you can't be trying to pitch something or do something that is aiming at making people happy, aiming at like, oh, stats say that blah, 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 this, that, and the other. I think we've all heard a million times that the winner of the Dragon's Den or the pitch or the business buy was nothing like what we were looking for, but it was just undeniable in the room. You've heard that, right? So I think that's the thing is it can't be about serving a million masters or it won't be great. Go pitch. Pitch the fuck out of your work. And when you get there, make it worth everybody's while to bring it right, right on back Homecoming is so good and was so appealing to Julia Roberts because there's a whole bunch of stuff she's doing that we haven't seen in a while. And I'm really excited for everybody to see it and tell me what you think. And for you, you have yet to sit down with it. I assume when I leave tonight in my pajamas, you're going to turn it on. I can't wait to see what you think. Okay. Well, (laughs) I don't know if I can make that promise, but I will watch it within the next month. (laughs) 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, as promised, the Royal Report Card. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's first overseas tour to Australia, Fiji, Tonga, and New Zealand is over. We set, I think, a four-box report card three weeks ago. Safe to say, I think they checked it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, thank you guys for getting so eagerly on board. There were reports of what was happening on the report card and people submitting entries for it yeah. right away, which I really appreciate. Animals, kids, done. W- yeah. Do we need to specify, like, is it the first item to tick the box or the most memorable? Why don't we go most memorable? The kid thing for me uh, was that little boy from mm-hmm. primary school uh, whose name I can't remember, the little boy with the glasses yes. who loved like rubbing Harry's beard right. and kept going in for hugs. Check mark. Check right? Mark. Like that's, come on. Yes. Yeah. And there were all manner of koalas and marsupials uh, presented to the royal couple. I think they like had stuffed toys given to them at every single stop. So we got the animals covered. I just need to interject already because I think, didn't uh, your favorite, uh, didn't George like toss a marsupial at some point? <laughs> there was the, like, there was a rumor of when he went, there was a play date set up for him and either he stole a toy or yanked a toy out of another kid's hand and threw it or whatever. I mean, typical Prince George shit. I feel like I remember him like rejecting a stuffed koala because it wasn't good enough and it was caught on on camera somewhere. It was on that trip that the word brute was used to describe him because he was a little bit of a bulldozer. By you. By you. (laughs) No, no, no. Like by one of the witnesses or sources or observers who were like like at that play date. Anyway, um, the fashion. Yes. So what we were talking about was uh, the sort of qualitative characteristics that they list on the report card. Yeah. Uh, We sort of said we wanted things that were, what, memorable and uh, indicative of The environment. Yeah. Yeah. And and origin and that kind of thing. So lots of designers represented by – so lots of designers and pieces representing the places they were visiting. All that checks off. In terms of styling, more miss than hit for me. Well, and very similar, right? Like there are a lot of outfits uh, and the Fug Girls have been really at the forefront of pointing this out. A lot of outfits that are exceedingly similar, uh, you know, a couple of different uh, off-white or beige column dresses, which are very Megan anyway, topped by not identical, but virtually identical trenches, that kind of thing. And striped outfits. Like almost every striped outfit was exactly the same. Okay. Well, I'm not mad at that because I love a stripe, as you know. I love a stripe too, but I don't think that one striped dress has to be the almost exact same as the next striped dress, especially if it's on the same day or the next day. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So the styling is hair miss for me. Yes. Right. That was, uh, you're holding up and showing me a photo of Prince George in Australia with, I think, what's called a bilby. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think a seconds, stuffed bilby. I think seconds later, he pitched it away in this photo. <laughs> he was like, get that shit away from me. So we will have both <laughs> of these available for you or links uh, therein to, to show you what we're laughing at. Um, yeah, so the styling. Now, here's the thing. Uh, styling, but and the clothes and the fashion and whatnot. Has there been a fashion wow? I'm not sure that there has. No. Or not, not for a, me. Not a predictable one. I do have one, but we'll get to it, I think, in our next point. Um, and, of course, we know that she's also dealing with a changing body, right? That this is the time. Uh, we don't have an exact date on when she's due or whatnot, but when a woman is pregnant in the kind of in-between times, but after she has started to show, but before it looks recognizable as what will be a, a baby, like a pregnancy, it's it's an odd time and it's odd to find fits and some people look like they're pregnant only in the ribs or like in the hips or whatnot. So, you know, difficulty acknowledged that there is that changing body all the time happening and it can be almost daily in that time. So maybe something that was packed 17 days ago no longer works. Maybe that's why she's repeating. But yeah, no great moments. No, no great moments. And there was a lack of I mean, I think you can tailor properly even when a body is changing. Things can still um, be, like, properly pressed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They can still um, lie well along the back. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of problem with fit and not necessarily just to do with the pregnancy. Sure. But we would be remiss if we didn't include the that one unfortunate dress that had the tag still on it. So... Um, that was, that was a moment. So not so much on the clothes. So out of four categories or was kids and animals one? Kids and animals were two separate. Okay. Yeah. So we had kids, animals, check, check. We do not have a check for clothes overall, like as a style. And then the next was, was it food? Yeah. It was like eating different or yeah, it was sampling different cuisines, wasn't it? Sure. Now, I mean, she got way ahead of us on this one. Immediately after we recorded that podcast, she rolled out with some banana bread that she baked. Right. You thought she had like insomnia and that's why she got up and made banana bread. Yeah. Um, and I know nothing about baking and don't like it, but I feel like you can't use fresh bananas, right? Like you have to wait for them to be old. I've heard that for a good banana bread, you have to wait till it's like really like black. So no place that is hosting the Royals is going to have black bananas anywhere in the vicinity. Right. So either she brought them, which is amazing. Like that's forethought on a level that we don't account for. I don't know if she could. Like, because remember the transporting of produce from one country to another. Like, there have been people who've been arrested for an orange. Yeah, but regular people. Yes. Like, not, this is, this okay, is them. Okay, so are we saying that the Sussexes broke the law? The I banana know. broke the law? Maybe she Amazon them there. I have no idea. Oh, Duanna, I really like this twist, that you, this wrench that you've thrown into the royal tour. I'm just saying, like, you know, I like a mystery. I like a clue. Where did she get the bananas? Duanna Taha may have stumbled on a major international incident. I'm really happy about this because, I mean, come on. Like, you guys tell us if I'm wrong and you can make them with bright yellow bananas, oh, then great. Oh, it's a fact that you have to have very, very ripe to the point of nobody eats it, like, you know, 
off the whatever peel banana to make banana bread. That's okay. a thing. So scenario A, they smuggled in some black bananas. <laughs> Breaking the law. Uh, scenario B, her supposedly spontaneous moment was actually planned two weeks in advance. And she was like, yes, please have them leave out right. bananas for me until such time as they are black and unappealing. Right. And, you know, when they walked into their room with all the tasteful linens and ribbons, there was like a plate of perfect black bananas. Or some lackey had to go out in the middle of the night and find, like, do a Chrissy Teigen. But where are you going to get black remember bananas? Remember Chrissy Teigen? Of course. Yeah. I do. For those who don't remember, she was making, was it actually banana bread that she was making? I'm pretty sure she was making banana bread. And then she did a call out. And then her mom, I think, drove around picking up these very ripe bananas around Los Angeles. Yeah. She was like, listen, if you're anywhere near me, uh, my mom will come and get some bananas. So yes. yeah, but added layer of security, right? You can't say I'm getting bananas for no. the duchess or yeah. the whole ruse is up. Not only that, but you can't, like you risk poisoning. Like you can't just bring any fucking food to a royal to eat. Excellent point. Right? Who's tasting the black bananas? Who's test tasting the ripe bananas? So, okay. Or they, yeah, or they Amazon them ahead of time and we're like, do not open that box that's uh, that's there on the bed. Just leave it. It's fine. What are their fruit flies? We this don't care. This is an excellent work mystery. I feel good about it. What yeah. is the work that went into the banana bread? Right. Everybody in Australia, if you're listening, investigate for us, please. Where did the ripe banana come from? Or another another theory. Or she wakes up, she's wandering around and wanders into the kitchen. They're all like, oh my goodness, hello, miss, whatever, where everybody's cooking. And somebody's like, oh, I'm making banana bread. And she's like, oh, please, can I help? Can I be in it? Can I make the banana bread? And then she, it, the story that is comes out is not... Megan happened upon the cooks. Right. But <laughs> right. she's that Megan made banana bread. Okay. I love this mystery. You guys weigh in. Let us know how you think the banana bread got made. Do you Where think, did the bananas come from? Do you think the Sussexes broke customs and immigration law? Do you think that a very ripe banana was pre-ordered ahead of the trip? Do you think that this was a Chrissy Teigen situation or do you think that this was spun to be like Meghan Markle's banana bread when it was really just the chef of the estate where they were staying um, and she got to like cut a banana and suddenly she co-opted the banana bread and that poor person doesn't get credit? Right. I'm going to go, I think, with right now my bet is option number one. <laughs> so customs and... <laughs> So you're saying customs and immigration laws were violated? I don't know if they're violated because you know when it says like you can't you... bring produce across that border. You can't. Maybe they can. <laughs> you don't know. They live a very fancy life, and you know when they arrive at those private airports and things. Like, do you really think they're checking for bananas? I thought the whole fucking point of them was that like you know their rules are our rules in these senses. I don't know. I truly don't know. And it's like, I've seen that episode of The Simpsons, as everybody has. The reason that you're not supposed to bring things like that across Biohazard. And like, yeah, and ecosystems and interrupting yeah. them. Yeah. But I don't know. They were like, we got bananas. You got bananas. Yeah, but dude, he's a conservationist. Like, one of his platforms is protecting the environment. Okay, so the plot thickens. 
Wow. I love this. Good. Um, okay. Anyway, on the subject of Harry and Meghan, less fun probably, or maybe more fun. Um, well, didn't we have another category on our report card? No, I'm was, pretty sure that was Was it. that it? Was there not like moments or cutes or whatever? Oh, well, this ties into this. Very good. For sure. Um, one of the distinguishing features of this tour was the PDA. They were holding hands and clutching each other and hanging off of each other constantly. I mean, am I the only one? I'm not an exhibitionist per se, at least not for the purposes of this podcast, but like, am I the only one who bristles at the idea of touching hands being called PDA? (laughs) I think that there will be people out there who agree with you, like that this is, you know, far more or far less, I don't know, chaste than what PDA normally is. Like, Typically in our world, PDA means some chick is straddling a dude and grinding on him at the bar, right? Oh, yeah. One of the most disgusting memes is like people making out while kind of like hip shuffling together, like they're grinding. It's horrifying. Yeah. Um, That to me is like, yeah, that's PDA. I I have trouble with this, but I I know where you're going. So let's go. By their standards, what Harry and Meghan do is PDA in their world. How about that? Amazing. Okay, so um, about that PDA, Patricia Treble for McLean's Magazine wrote a piece after the tour, and the title was, Why Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's Royal Tour PDA Could Be a Bad Thing. The touchy-feely royals risk looking like mere celebrities, which is not part of their actual job, and that could have consequences down the road, even amid all their good work. So if you read the article, we will attach it to the show notes, What she's suggesting or wondering is whether or not the Sussex Signature PDA is unprofessional. Right. And so McLean's Magazine, of course, is a national Canadian news magazine, but Patricia Treble, if I understand correctly, is a lifelong royal watcher, right? Like this has been her beat. Yeah. She is McLean's royal expert, 100%. And so I ask that because she's pulling from context, like she's pointing out how different this is to other royal couples, uh, to what we've seen before. Yes. And she's quoting other royal watchers, people who also are observers and who are, you know, spend a lot of time doing the observing and making the observations and quotes, quotes one of them as saying, um, it's now starting to come across as clingy, needy, and insecure, and more importantly, actually quite unprofessional. Now, there are some people who think that Meghan and Harry went on this tour to work. And so, just like if you, or I'll speak on my behalf. You can speak on my behalf. If you were out with your partner Mm -hmm. at a pitch meeting, Mm -hmm. would you arrive at the pitch meeting holding his hand? I mean, of course. Of course I wouldn't, unless, (laughs) unless, no, and this is relevant. Would I arrive at the pitch meeting holding his hand? Of course I wouldn't, unless we were pitching a show about our relationship, right? Unless it's the two of us pitching something that is about the two of us. By contrast, if you go to my wedding or I go to yours and I don't kiss the dude when it's time for the kiss or if you go to one of those clink, clink, clink weddings where people want to like tap the – like you would be churlish and horrible, right? Yep. Because you're supposed to be displaying affection in that environment. So there are two schools of thought. Some people believe that their job is to 
represent themselves as a couple as part of the story, just like you said in that pitch. If the pitch for the show was about you as a couple, yes, you might consider walking into the pitch meeting holding hands. Now, of course, to your point, holding hands in that case is strategy. It's not just like clinginess and anxiety or whatnot. Um, But yeah, if the situation was warranted. So was the situation warranted on this tour? Here's my thing. Yeah, of course, we just stopped time to watch them get married in May. You can't have it both ways. And I get fussy with fussy royal watchers because it's like, I would love somebody to do an overall tally of every news broadcast who broadcast live from the royal wedding and see how many times the word fairy tale was used. Right. Like, I'm going to conservatively guess it was between 21 and 52,000. That's my guess. Right. Um, We'll include the whole weekend, you know, but that's my assumption. Um, You can't sell me a fairy tale wedding and they fell in love and, oh, he said, oh, she looks beautiful or whatever it is he's whispering when we're up at at the front of the aisle and sell me the full Cinderella story. And then be mad that they're still in love four months later. Like, that's ridiculous. I don't, I can't. And I get the idea that they are there to work. But part of the whole thing we've talked about since we started talking about royals is how much work this gig entails and how whoever it is is involved has to understand the work and be fine with it and whatnot. And isn't that what they're doing? Like selling the dream of being desperately in love while going on uh, goodwill or humanitarian missions? Well, the key here in this article at the top is the touchy-feely royals risk looking like mere celebrities. I mean, it's a good line. Right? Yeah. I love that. Mere celebrities. As if, you know, a celebrity is just a celebrity. And, I mean, like, let's unpack that. That's the accusation that is thrown at Meghan Markle all the time, right? Like, she's just an actress. She's not somebody who is in the more elevated echelons of this world. Right. And so I guess the deeper question is, celebrity is fleeting. Fame can be fleeting. Can be. Can be. Monarchy is a constant, or that is their intended goal. They want to be a stable force, something that's around forever. Mm-hmm. So the opponents of the PDA would argue that this is behavior for celebrities who can only sort of catch fire and flame for a while before eventually they'll be replaced. Whereas with royalty, they're around, that title is for all intents and purposes, a constant force. But here's the thing. Present company accepted for uh, obvious reasons. Aren't most royal experts super old? Like, it sounds more than anything like fussy old people being being fussy uh, for two reasons. One, because they're like, well, it's not how it was done. Like, you know, dropping monocles into drinks and whatnot. But also because, and this is something that I learn from you all the time, they're talking about the way the monarchy has been. Uh-huh. Right? Yep. Well, you tell me then. Because it's like, isn't the whole thing that 
we're in a totally new era and they have to like survive or die. I agree. I mean, to me, I definitely think that monarchy has to borrow a little from the modern celebrity to stay relevant. There's a reason why they're on Instagram now, like officially on Instagram. There's a reason why they're not just on Instagram, but on Insta story. <laughs> I mean, that's hilarious. Yeah. Like it's, right? yeah, it's live in the moment because the less relevant they seem, the less anybody cares and wants to keep them around. So the people that they need to care about, um, they're not reading their fucking old school scroll press releases that get tacked on to the outside of the gate with like a golden nail or, or sorry, no, they put it on an easel or some shit like that. Like who the fuck cares, right? They're taking their press releases right to Twitter and right to Instagram. So they are, like it or not, having to borrow from celebrity, period. Well, and even more pertinently, you know, the people they have to appeal to the people who they need to keep on the hook so they keep paying the taxes are young people like themselves. I am sure that there are a, all kinds of teen and 20-something and 30 and 40-something people who are like, I hate PDA. I don't want to mm -hmm. see it. I don't like it. But the young people who they need to get on board, the people who Harry and Meghan are credited with basically looping back into standing for the monarchy – are young people who want to see people looking real, who don't care yeah. about the stiffness and the walking five feet apart or whatever it is. Yes? Yes. That said, yeah. play by the sword, die by the sword. Go so, on. So as we know from celebrity, which is what you and I do, and we've been doing this shit a long time, you've worked on an entertainment news show, like we've created stories out of less. When you establish your celebrity profile or your celebrity couple profile and you have a signature, you have to maintain the signature. And you think that's going to be a problem? The minute that that signature doesn't show up or you don't feel like holding hands that day or you don't feel like caressing each other's back that day, that is when the celebrity behavior turns on you in that he didn't hold her hand today. He didn't look at her lovingly today. They didn't, I don't know, giggle at each other today. They didn't have their arms around each other today. What does it mean? Sure, but maybe they circumvent that by adopting a lot of behaviors early. I don't know. Like, do we get to see the shot where they have just gone on a run together and then they're tired after and they're like slumped against each other back to back in sweatshirts? Probably not. We don't get to see that, but like yeah. that's a different narrative. There were shots a few days ago that I believe were either marketed as or supposed to be like without press. Yeah. Uh, where they were taking kind of a nature walk and she's wearing his puffer. Sure. Um, you know, and he was really upset that the Daily Mail was there. There's a shot of him pointing angrily at the camera. Yeah. And then she is smiling the whole time. You can see that she's looking at him with concern. Um, but still maintaining the sort of pleasantness of the walk. And I sort of go, okay, so they've broken that mold already. Here's what they look like when he's less than pleased. Look, we all have those days. Like we all have moments where you are not pleasant to be around or don't look pleasant. I wonder whether they, you know, are aware that the sooner they put that out there, the more and more human they become. Yeah, I wonder too. And I wonder what the equivalent of celebrity behavior and celebrity tracking of behavior will be 
on the royal side. For instance, you know now that with celebrities, we can build a story out of they stopped following each other on Instagram. Sure. Yeah, that's a move for sure. (laughs) That's a move. It means something now. Right. He hasn't liked a post of hers or she hasn't liked a post of his for two weeks. Something's up. Sure. I'm just saying when I say play by the sword, die by the sword, there is a royal equivalent to that. We don't know what that is yet. Ah, but we do. And here's how. And I learned it from you because you posted the other day about Prince Charles in Vanity Fair. And I was like, ah, do I care? I don't like that guy. I don't think I care about what he has to say or whatever. It's fine. But then there's the awesome shot on the inside leaf mm-hmm. of him sitting with Camilla. Yep. And her hand is on his fucking upper thigh. Oh, yeah. And do you know what that is? That is masterful. Yep. Because what it tells us, I mean, those two are the last laugh because after however many years of having to be apart, now that they're together, they they might hate each other for all we know, but what they sell is, yet yeah, we're still hot for each other. This was the right decision right. this whole time. And everybody's like, Oh, yeah, I guess he really did want to be her tampon. Like, (laughs) people are really into it. So I think that you can build on that. I think the key is they're going to have to build up a big vocabulary. Like, I almost am thinking about emojis, you know? We have to see them in many, many modes, Harry and Meghan, so that you can then go, oh, yeah, there's their, you know, she's sick to her stomach and he's laughing because she ate too much emoji. Like that we get to see more than just the polite smiling so that there's a wide range of normal and the stories don't stem, as you say, from, oh, he furrowed his brow at her today. They're over. Well, whatever it is, it's not going to happen soon. I mean, they're in that baby glow, pre-baby glow. That's going to last. The baby's going to come. Then we're going to see the after-baby glow. Um, So we've got, like, at least two years of this. Well, it's so funny that you say that because – I was thinking that a time when we might see it, uh, this is a thing that is, uh, it's it's not based in gender, but I think that when people have a baby uh, and the baby has stopped being a lizard and is like an active wriggling seven or nine or whatever month child, um, that's when the partner who is not, uh, who has not carried the child is often a bit oblivious about the logistics of what's happening and what's being grabbed or pulled or whatever. That's not about men and women. Mm -hmm. I have seen same-sex partnerships where it is the exact same thing. The primary caretaker is the one obsessing and the other person is striding blithely ahead. I wonder if they're wise enough to be giving him, you know, watch the baby lessons to remind him that, because they'll all coo over it when it's in the blanket, when she steps out of the Lido wing, Lindo wing, Lido, Lindo, Lindo. Yeah. Um, or Cedar sinai who knows? Um, but you know, when it gets bigger and is kind of sentient and gets to the point where you really appreciated big G the brute, that's when there can be obliviousness and space between them. So I, I bet you that will be the first story of, oh, trouble in paradise? Yes. Megan irritated that Harry doesn't notice that Princess whoever has dropped her binky. I, I'm telling you. <laughs> All right. I look forward to it. Very good. I can't wait. Celebrity coverage, royal style. And finally, you sent me 
an interview that I loved with somebody who I never thought we would actually be talking about on this podcast. No. And Alyssa Milano um, has, though, made headlines, what, over the last month or so? Uh, even longer, I'd say. Almost for the last the last little while, but sure, call it the last five or six months, she's been getting more and more vocal and presenting herself as uh, somebody who has things to say. Yes, for sure. I was speaking of like big, big headlines because, of course, she was peeking over uh, Brett Kavanaugh's right shoulder during the Kavanaugh hearings. Right. But that was born out of something else. Yeah, she has been one of the vocal um, celebrities regarding Me Too. And actually, she was the celebrity who Me Too'd and took it to the mainstream. So after Harvey Weinstein, Tarana Burke is the creator of the Me Too hashtag. However, it wasn't mainstream until after Harvey Weinstein and the allegations broke that it was Alyssa Milano who retweeted Me Too. And it took, I mean, she has however many followers, more than Tarana Burke. And that's what sort of elevated Me Too into a different stratosphere in terms, like in terms of, uh, you know, critical mass. Yeah, it gave it major, major reach. That's right. Absolutely. Nobody uh, wants to imply that she created it, least of all, I think, Alyssa Milano. But it, yes, it gave it a different sort of household name status. That's right. So Vulture just did an interview with her. It's a really good interview with lots. They cover lots. They cover Me Too. They cover her relationship with Rose McGowan. Um, the reason I sent it to you, though, was what she says near the end. She's been working and shooting in Atlanta. She is working on... Uh, what is probably the second season of Netflix's Insatiable, which, uh, as you know, has had a lot of criticism. It's a show about uh, a character who becomes thin after having been fatty patty at her school and sort of the what comes out of that. And there was a lot of controversy about it when it came out for being uh, fat shamey and arguably homophobic and all kinds of things. And I remember Alyssa Milano did a long uh, Instagram live addressing some of those concerns and was quite thoughtful about it. So the show is going into production for another season. Yeah. Um, and today happens to be the day when this podcast is posted. It will be the day of the midterm elections in the United States. She's been very active. Guys, we don't have to say this, but if you are American and you are listening to this, please, please, please go vote. If there's still time, if you're listening to this as soon as it get po gets posted, stop listening to us and go vote first. Especially because we post on Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> if you're anywhere west of that, you have time. Please, please, please go vote. Or take us with you while you're voting. Amazing. Great. We, we are great entertainment in a voting line. Absolutely. So she's been very active. She's been on the phone bank. She's been going door to door. She's been very, very vocal on her uh, Twitter feed. You don't have to question where she stands on this. Not at all. So the question that Vulture asks her is, do politics affect what roles you choose? Her response, I'm trying to think. So there's an instance right now that is concerning for me as far as a job, and that is that we shoot insatiable in Georgia. She goes on to talk about the political situation in Georgia. And then she goes on to say, if this man is elected, I'm going to have a very hard time going back to insatiable and feeding their economy with my industry. 
And I would also hope that the 20 other productions that are in Georgia would also find it very difficult to go back there and feed their economy with such blatant voter suppression. Then she goes on to name her candidate, the one that she's voting for. And so she says that she's emotionally invested in Georgia, that she's her kids go to school there, that, you know, she lives there. It's a home for them there. But she said, what's going on there is criminal. For me personally, I don't think there's any fucking way if that election is stolen that I can go back and shoot and feed the economy of Georgia. So I sent it to you because I was like, well, shit. Right. And I think we should clarify uh, that I think she doesn't vote in Georgia. I imagine she is a California resident or pays taxes there or whatever. Um, but yeah, clearly endorses one candidate over the other and has these concerns about, about the voter suppression and, and so forth. incidentally, Oprah's been spending time in Georgia. She made headlines very, like a couple of days ago for going door to door, um, campaigning for the same candidate that Alyssa Milano is, you right. know, it's supporting. Stacey Abrams That's is right. the candidate there. So it's the governor race. Right. Um, so that's a big declaration. So if it doesn't go the way that Alyssa Milano hopes it will, does she not work on Insatiable anymore if it stays in Georgia? Great question. Um, and I think the first question, yeah, the first question is, does Insatiable stay in Georgia? Yeah. Is Alyssa Milano powerful enough to move the production to L.A. or Toronto or anywhere else. So the reason that 20 productions shoot in Georgia, of course, is not just for fun or to uproot people. It's because there are major, major tax benefits to shooting there. Yeah. Uh, it's also the reason that a lot of productions shoot in Vancouver or Toronto, other places. But Atlanta has – and this, Atlanta and the surrounding area – has weather that looks reliably like California or Arizona or wherever Insatiable might be set. I don't actually know. But basically, you can be outside for longer and mm -hmm. shoot for longer while still approximating seasons. Yeah. So first question is, yeah, do they move it for her? I don't know, man. On the one hand, she's the name in that cast. Uh, no disrespect to Debbie Ryan or to the creator, uh, Lauren Ungerlich, but she is the, she's the name in that cast. So I would argue that they don't necessarily want to lose her. Then again, you know, I don't think she's that essential to the show. I'm sure they would say, you know, there's, there's a way to write her out, certainly. Well, but let's go back because you mentioned the tax credits. So... Not to put too obvious a point on it, but they go there to shoot because they're trying to save money. It's so much cheaper yes. than doing the same production in Los Angeles or New York. That's right. They're yes. saving money. So this is about money. Yeah. That's why the, all the productions are there in the first place. It's and not yes. because of the booming industry in Atlanta, no. which isn't to say that there isn't a huge film community in and around Georgia, who is benefiting enormously. Of and course. just to give you an idea, um, The Walking Dead shoots there, uh, The Vampire Diaries and the originals, and I believe... I'm sorry, the Marvel movies shoot there. The Avengers shoots there. Yeah, like, it's 
Everything else you've named is like potatoes and small compared to the Avengers. Well, no, I'm going to argue with you though. Yeah, it might be small budget, but those are long, long running shows. They've been employing people for a long, long time, as would be the goal with Insatiable, especially for Netflix who are notoriously kind of private about their metrics and how they judge whether a show should or shouldn't get a second season. Pour one out for my beloved American Vandal which is not getting a third season. Um, but they want to create something that's going to go on for a while. Well, I mean, that's the Marvel Cinematic Universe too. Like, you know, already things are in place for, I don't know, the fucking seventh movie, the eighth movie, then a spinoff of like, you know, Captain Marvel and Brie Larson and what else. So they have like decade-long plans for production that are already in place. Marvel. Now, what the reason why I called the other ones small potatoes is not just because of the length and how however many seasons, which we've already established. A Marvel movie, there have already been four Avengers. They're hoping however many more, and they spin off that many characters. But also the salaries of these people. Remember, like you're dealing with um, Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr., all of whom get back cuts. It's an enormous amount of money to pay that kind of talent. So they need the tax credits off the production in order to be able to justify these multi, multi, multi million dollar deals. I think Scarlett Johansson, it was just reported, um, that she's getting the same, like she's getting Chris money. Right. And I thought you were going to go a totally different way there, which is to say that those mega, mega, mega salaries for those actors are being spent in Georgia. They then help the Georgian, Georgian, they then help the Georgia economy, um, that there's all this money coming through that, you know, a film crew of 120, 150 people who all live there for five months at a time or for nine months when it's uh, a season of a show, that's all money going into that economy. So, there are two ways this can go. On the one hand, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to say, Alyssa Milano is taking jobs out of people's mouths. Like Alyssa Milano is advocating to, to unemploy people from Georgia, which is not the point, but could be collateral damage. Or the other way around it is that there are people in Georgia who maybe are on the fence about voting or about how the suppression is going or whatever, who go, oh God, if more people think this, if Marvel feels this way, the same way, and everybody picks up and leaves, first of all, I'm sure there's some other state who would be gagging to offer tax credits that could rival Georgia's. You can move on over to Arizona with no problem, I assume. Uh, everybody would love that kind of finance coming to town. And then people go, oh, well, if we're going to lose this, if we're really in danger of losing this kind of money, maybe then there have to be some changes made. It depends on where you think Alyssa Milano falls on the influence scale. And where do you think she falls on the influence scale? So here's my thing. I don't think she's that influential, obviously, but she's got huge recognition, right? Like if we were doing the A-list, B-list, C-list thing, we know she's not A-list, but she's got like huge, huge name recognition and face recognition. Everybody knows who she is. What I think is the key is I think she knows that. She knows how powerful she is or isn't. If I'm Alyssa Milano and I really believe this, if she's really putting her money where her mouth is and she's not one of those celebrities who's like, I'm moving to Canada if Trump wins, then I assume she's lobbying people much more powerful than herself. 
Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. She's not saying, hey, I was on the phone to the head of Marvel Studios or like, you know, I called in a favor with Joss Whedon who called the one person who will still talk to him there. I don't know. But that's, I think, the power move on her part. Like, I don't have any trouble believing that Alyssa Milano has a phonable relationship with Oprah and would be like, hi, who else do I call? What do I do to make this happen? Do you think that the producers and Netflix would have heard this for the first time reading this interview? That's a good question. Uh, Yeah. uh, Well, Netflix, yes, probably. Whoever is over there is like, "Ah, who's making noise? Yes, probably. The producers? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think she probably has done her homework on this. She sounds very, very well-read and well-up on things in this interview. So I don't believe for a minute that this is the first time that she's had these concerns. And so if you really were serious about it, and if you were talking about not enrolling your kids in school for the next session, um, then yeah, I do believe it. That said, she also talks about how they don't have a set production date for the season, that they're talking about the spring. So if Tuesday... Uh, today turns out to be uh, an indication of the kind of voter suppression that she's talking about, then they have some time to pivot or to write things a different way if they decide to not have her back. Oh, wow. I mean, what do you think? What? It, let me put you in the position of her publicist. Hey. That's who I was thinking about. Go. So Vulture wants to do an interview with you. She's like, great. And they talk about Kavanaugh and they mm-hmm. talk about Uh, being the victim of trolls. Like, the whole thing is a really good read. Uh, And then she comes out with this at the end. What do you think? I don't think that if... I mean, if you are Alyssa Milano's publicist and you're surprised by this, then I'm not sure you were doing your job. Like, you can't know Alyssa Milano after following her and sort of even... Even on the periphery, being aware of what she's been doing over the last couple of years without expecting something like this. That said... I think it's a different situation if it's Alyssa Milano's personal publicist as it is if it's the unit publicist for Netflix Insatiable Insa- and yeah. Netflix. Yes, which, and I don't know who placed this interview. It's not really time for an insatiable press push, so it makes more sense that it would have been personal. But it is conceivable that the publicist for the show is just lining things up left, right, and center. This is one of them. And that this is what comes out. That person is getting a call, for sure, from their boss. Well, uh, you know, the interview was done by E. Alex Jung. I love him. He's mm-hmm. done so mm-hmm. many great interviews for Vulture over the last few years. The title itself is, it puts it right there, the Georgia governor's race might keep Alyssa Milano off insatiable. That is what he's leading with. That is the headline. Yeah, for sure. And then it opens with Alyssa Milano and what she did when she was 15 and Ryan White Those of you who are very young won't remember Ryan White, but Ryan White um, was 13 years old when he contracted HIV through a blood transfusion. And she, um, you know, she tried to attack the stigma at the time of HIV and AIDS. And, you know, so she was active and an activist even then. So this has been a lifelong thing or career-long thing for Alyssa Milano. As she attempts to say, this is not new for me. Um, so the unipublist, if, 
So the unit publicist, if they're surprised, especially after spending time with Alyssa Milano in Georgia, where she has been active and clearly very informed on the gubernatorial race, I would be like, are you doing your job? <laughs> Whoever set this up, are you doing your job? Right. If they didn't know that this was a possibility. And yeah. of course, in defense of publicists, um, they often, and I've seen this from both sides, they often will say, okay, let's keep this light. Let's talk about this or that or whatever. If the interviewer is doing their job, they go for the juicy topic and the performer who is dying to talk about something real digs right in. Yeah. Um, and remember, this happened after Kavanaugh. Yeah, so absolutely. She was making headlines. You know, they put her face on a stick on Saturday Night Live during Matt Damon's cold open. So this phone call went out to Alyssa Milano after that. Hey, can we talk to you? She would have been expecting it. It would be insane to me if anybody on her team wasn't expecting it. Absolutely. So, you know, I... That answers your question then, I guess. Is this the first time that people are hearing about this? I guess not. No. Nope. So it remains to be seen. Will she get her way if she has to get her way? I mean, I don't know, but I think what's really interesting is if you read this whole interview, she's clearly galvanized. Uh, there's a phrase here where she says, quote, I feel like I've been on a two-year field visit within my own country. And we're talking all issues. We're talking water in Flint. This has been a really rough five years. I'm not letting Obama off the hook either. This has not been easy. She is clearly in a phase of her life where she does not give a fuck. And she is in the, it would seem, the financial position and the position of relative notoriety to use whatever fame and and recognition she has to fight for what she cares about. As we saw when she showed up at the Kavanaugh hearing, she wasn't there because it was a photo op for her. She was there because she cared about what was happening. So if this goes the way where they're like, sorry, they cut her loose. She's probably, I know you love this. She's probably number five on the call sheet. Um, she's going to be like, great. It's time to go full-time activism. And I wouldn't be surprised. I guess we'll find out in some hours. Please, please, please say you're listening to this from the inside of the voting booth yeah. line. You're in your car right now. You're driving to the polling station. Promise? <laughs> Go vote, everybody. That is another episode of Show Your Work in the Books. Uh, check us out where you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us. Leave comments. They're so useful for us. They keep us going. We really appreciate the support. And you can check out uh, the fantastic pajamas I'm wearing on social media because we will post uh, the glory that they are. Um, definitely send your notes and your thoughts to us on Twitter, on Instagram, and to email us. We love hearing from you. And we do want to read more of your emails on air. So definitely get back to us with what you're thinking about. And yeah, let us know if you think the Sussex has committed a crime. We'll be back next week with a very special episode. Till then, bye. Work hard. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.